At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, February 27th, 2023 edition. Welcome to another week of the markets and investing, and hopefully we can get you started off right on this Monday. I'm Justin Klein. I'm here on this podcast and radio show to help you make the most of your capital, to maximize your portfolio strategies, to reach your ultimate end goal, which is financial freedom. And so I look forward to doing this Invest Talk podcast with you and hearing your finance and investment questions and giving you my straight and unbiased answers. No hidden agenda. Not trying to push you on anything. Just trying to give you a balanced look at whatever you are trying to decide on, whether that's individual stock, a, a broad strategy, a mutual fund, an ETF, real estate, whatever it is, it's really about looking at the facts, weeding out emotions, which is difficult. Frankly, that is the most difficult part of this endeavor. It's building the emotional strength to focus on the facts on the ground. To not get caught up in both fear and greed. Greed when you hear a sexy, exciting story. And then fear when things aren't going your way. Or the market's way or the economy's way. And you feel the, the risk that you're taking. And today's investing situation is a bit different than what we've experienced over the past you know, decade and a half, really since the financial crisis. You know, we have our first real major war. Yeah, we had Iraq and Afghanistan, but those are more kind of occupations versus true wars. And we have a war on multiple fronts, obviously a kinetic war in Eastern Europe and a building trade war. And so serious investors need to be prepared to take the recent lessons that can be learned since COVID and then lessons that you need to learn by studying history, studying what's happened in the past, because as they say, history does not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And when you can see it rhyming, you can take a lot of those lessons and apply them. And you want to apply them judiciously in order to make 
more money and to avoid the pitfalls that come along with, with doing this. And this will build you a more disciplined approach. When you have a longer term perspective, it helps you kind of weed out the noise. So one thing you should kind of always ask yourself when you think of investment ideas, have I done anything like this in the past? How did that work out? And historically, how does this investment typically do? Or ones like it. So my goal here is to shape your thinking in order for you to become a successful investor. And of course, I encourage your participation and your finance and investment questions, which you can call our anytime toll-free listener line at 888-99-CHART, 24-7-365. Or if you're listening during our live stream program, 4 to 5 Pacific Time, you can call that same number and talk to me live. I love that as well. Now, my focus point concerns the story behind this headline. China's economy is looking at a new wave of Japanification. And I think there are a lot of parallels that you can really pull from. I just talked about history. Talked about looking in the past and what had happened. Well, there's a lot of rhyming going on in China. If you look at kind of Japan in the late 80s, early 90s. So we're going to look at that. Also, apartment rents, they are falling. Remember when apartment, couldn't find an apartment and it's too expensive to rent? That, that's all reversing right now. And it's pretty much over the last six months. Shocker, when the rent moratorium uh, or eviction moratorium is lifted uh, across the economy. And so we're going to look at that data. Also, Congress is examining operations of U.S. companies in China. This is important because there's been a lot of companies that have benefited from expanding their operations. Expanding their operations into China, whether that is actual production or just opening offices there and trying to build a client base, right? Uh, 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 getting more earnings from their particular, uh, their population, right? That have been growing and increasing in wealth. And so I think that's going to be interesting to follow. So we're going to look at that. Then also stock buybacks. Stock buybacks are projected to hit a record this calendar year. So we're going to look at that data and how much that's going to have an impact on the market as a whole. Now, I also have some voice bank questions ready to play for you. And one is on zero commission brokers and LNG, Chenier Energy. And I have a few iTunes review questions to answer as well, as well as my perspective, which looks at simplifying the understanding of market complex stock market cycles. We're going to hit that around the halfway point, hopefully. Now, I've got this all planned for this episode of Invest Talk. And of course, I'm taking your live calls as well at 888-99 chart. Let's take a look at the market today. You have the S&P up decently, about 12 points. Not, not a big day, but about 0.3% in the S&P and the broad market. Uh, small caps were 
up around that as well. Mid-caps lagged a little bit, uh, 0.13% on that side. Growth definitely outperformed today, but that was just one day. Okay, um, But we hit support. We're not really breaking down. This is, a, so far, a run-of-the-mill pullback in the market. It's not anything that so far is worrying me, uh, especially if you look at credit spreads. They tightened over the past few days, and that's not an indication that the risk-off sentiment in equities is going to really build on itself. And then you look at the volatility index, the VIX, that also attempted to break out above the 100-day moving average, did for intraday, what was that, on Wednesday, and reversed, and we still remain uh, at pretty low levels, sub-25 uh, at pretty low levels, which means that likely you have uh, more upside. So we'll see. Uh, this is definitely a time where you could see volatility pick up, but we're not quite seeing it yet. Uh, we've hit support and held it so far. So that's where we're at in the markets. Now, this is Invest Talk, Steve Peasley, and I thank you for your participation and helping us achieve over 50 million downloads since it all began. And now we're moving into a quick break. And the other side, we'll take another listener question on Invest Talk at 888 chart. Get ready for a new KPP Financial Wealth Webinar Value Investing, Positioning Your Portfolio for Profitability, Relative Price, and Dividend Payments. The Wealth Webinar will be a crash course on how to structure your value portfolios, providing real examples with assessment tools that KPP Financial uses every day to grow clients' wealth. The webinar will be anchored by KPP Financial CEO and InvestTalk host, Justin Klein, and by KPP Financial Portfolio Manager, Luke Guerrero. Mark your calendar for Wednesday, March 22nd from 2 to 3 p.m. Pacific Time. You are invited to a new KPP Financial Wealth Webinar. Be sure to tell your friends and family members it's free and you can register now at investtalk.com. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Uh, name is Nick out here in Washington, a uh, long-time listener. Just wanted to get your thoughts on Intel uh, with its recent news of its um, them cutting its uh, dividends as well as laying off some of its employees. Um, yeah, looking forward to your answer on the podcast. All right, looking at Intel, and Intel has been struggling for a while, but it's also been cheap for a while, but it tends just just getting a bit cheaper and this is all about execution of the turnaround strategy. You know, Intel has a, a solid name, good distribution, uh, but AMD has caught up to them from a technology perspective in, in many ways, not every way, but in some ways. And in an era where many companies are, ex, are, are outsourcing their chip production to companies like Taiwan Semiconductor, Intel has been keeping that more in-house and... That can cut both ways. For years, it kept them having above-average margins. That's when they can execute on increasingly more complex production 
strategy or production technology. And as of late, they've been unable to kind of keep up with Taiwan Semiconductor and some of the other uh, chip foundries. And so that's really been the issue for Intel. Now, they, one, I think one of the big problems is they had their CFO. That's always a red flag for me, especially in the technology space. When your CFO becomes your CEO, it, it means that their expertise is doing things that are more financial. I wouldn't say chicanery, but they're financializing the business because that's their strength. And for a long time, that's who the Intel was run by. Now they're run by a C, their ex-CTO, who's now the CEO, which is, to me, a much better, better way to go about it. Because that's what they're going to focus on, is improving the technology, competing, uh, and having great IP that can keep their margins high, that can keep their business humming uh, and, and customers coming back. And I think they took their eye off the ball. The issue, though, or not the issue, the, the, the upside here is that, that that takes a little while, right? It, it's not going to bear fruit right away. And they're still in the process of kind of restructuring the business. And so it's really a lot of execution risk here. And I think they can certainly do it, but there's risk here. Um, I rather, if I'm going to invest in the chip space, I like the companies that uh, I call it picks and shovels. Just look how look how competitive this space is between AMD and Nvidia and and, and, and Intel. There's just a lot of companies that are competing uh, for market share, and I rather own companies that are more on the back end of, of developing chips and and testing chips, things like that. Those companies I tend to like more. So I like Intel long term. I think that they will turn it around and I think uh, based on their uh, the chips act as well and money and uh, money coming from government to basically build out new chip capacity I think Intel is going to be a big winner longer term so you have a couple of those to me tailwinds the CTO becoming the CEO the chips act uh, and I think there's more upside here but it, it's not without its risk let's just say that now we're moving into a break. My phone lines are open, so give me a call now at 888-99-CHART. Everybody wants a secure financial future, but getting there takes strategy, discipline, and the right information. That means you'll have finance and investment questions. Justin Klein is ready to provide his unbiased answers. So don't forget to call Invest Talk 888-99-CHART. Now my focus point concerns the story behind this headline. China's economy is looking at a new wave of Japanification. And I, I really like this article because it really hits on what I touched on at the top of the show, which is looking back at history and understanding that it often rhymes, and if you just have a little perspective, you can see those parallels and potentially capitalize sometimes and oftentimes avoid the pitfalls. And if you look at what happened in Japan from you know the 70s and 80s and then 
the bursting of their property bubble in the, in the late 80s and really their economy since then. And then you look at China, since they joined the World Trade Organization, they're on a very similar track. And in the 90s was kind of the, the bursting of the Japan property bubble. And this was after really throughout the 80s, everyone was talking about how they were going to overtake us, the United States, in the size of their economy. And what happened is they really fumbled the bag when it came to the bursting of that property bubble. And they mishandled the, the, the mountains of bad loans that were built up during that time. And there were a bunch of bank merges. Instead of writing off those bad loans, they just merged a bunch of basically bankrupt entities, propped them up, and disguised them. And they never really resolved the crisis. And that was, I think, one of the biggest problems with the R8, R08 financial crisis is that besides Lehman, there were too many that were kind of jumbled together and, and bailed out. Now, today, China looks pretty similar to that in the fact that they're going through a property bust and they have a demographic, demographic profile that is very similar to China with China's population now shrinking. After 1990, Japan's housing price index fell because their 35 to 54-year-old cohort started to decrease. They all started aging. And they didn't have the requisite younger people to fill the void and the demand for that housing. Now, both countries had long phases of strong GDP growth because there was a lot of investment in infrastructure and encouragement to export. Remember Honda and Toyota burst on the scene in the 70s and they were making cars a lot better and a lot more reliable than Ford and GM and they took market share. And China did this in a similar sense when it comes to industrial capacity. Between 2010 and 2020, capital formation represented an average of 43% of Chinese GDP. So this is basically investment in property and equipment. Now, in Japan's capital form, uh, Japan's bubble burst in 1990, Japan's capital formation was at 36%. So China's is even higher than that. And the way that it got so big is very similar. It was fueled by indirect financing provided by commercial banks. And this was all pushed by authorities to funnel money towards favored industries like properties. And the same thing is happening with China and the People's Bank of China directing lending activities of commercial banks. Now, Japan's 87 to 89 property and stock bubble expanded so rapidly because authorities introduced easing policies to promote domestic demand for property and stocks. Borrowing expanded rapidly, rapidly liquidity expanded rapidly, and all that all went to, into stock and property. Now, Chinese, China's 
property value in total hit $65 trillion in 2020. That's more than the US, EU, and Japan combined. And as of 2021, 41% of total assets in China's banking system were backed by some sort of property. So there's a massive property bubble in China. And then you have the demographic problem. And on top of that, you also have an increasing trade war, which is also similar to Japan. There's a lot of friction here in the U.S. and an outright trade war in the 80s. Technology, intellectual property, and security concerns were all considered. Sound familiar? It's exactly what's happening today with China. And then you add on top of that, you know, at least Japan we were allies with. China, we're not really allies. And so recent le legislation that would limit non-American access to advanced technologies, that is an exact echo of what happened in the 80s with, with Japan. And so what you need to do is learn those lessons by studying history. And that's what I'm trying to help you do here. And that's why I was, I've been saying for months, if not the last few years, China's just not, not investing. Now we're heading into a break and I'm ready for your calls now at 888-99-CHART. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Each day, InvestTalk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email 
Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. We're going to go up to San Jose, talk to Alberto, looking at Petrobras. Hello, Justin. Yeah, I'm looking at the energy sector. Uh, I hold a very small position uh, with Petrobras. Uh, I'm wondering to hear your thoughts about it. Should I add a little bit more or get rid of it? Well, Petrobras is an interesting one because, yes, it's in the energy space, but it's a Brazilian energy company, the largest in Brazil. And there's a ton of political risk here. And that's why it's trading cheap. Everyone's going to look at it and you're going to say, oh, look how cheap it's it's trading. It's trading at a one and a half times enterprise value to EBITDA. Yes, that's true. Um, and so I, I do think it's cheap. But it has the potential for nationalization. Right, We just had the recent election of Lula da Silva. And in Brazil, this is a company that's more of a utility of the state. And so that can mean a lot of different things, directing cash flow to government coffers, for example. It could be nationalizing the entire company if things get bad enough. So the it's just highly risky. And so... How much of your overall portfolio would you say Petrobras is now? Um, just like 1%, I believe. Okay. Yeah, I mean, upping that a little bit is fine to me. But having a large stake in its name like this, just I wouldn't feel comfortable with it. Because this is the name where okay. the winds of politics can cut this stock in half or more in overnight, right? Because it could just be they pass something that uh, directs all cash flow to the Brazilian government. That could happen. And so it means your dividends cut. It means there's no money left over for you, the shareholder. So like I said, increasing a little bit is fine, but definitely don't get too tied to this name because of that flow. Now, my perspective today gives us a chance to simplify the understanding of what can be complex interactions. And I'm referring to stock market cycles. Everything is a cycle. Right? Our lives are cycles. Okay? We're born, we grow older, eventually die. That's the cycle of human life. And some lives are shorter, some lives are longer. The moon has phases or cycles. Every 29 and a half days, the moon completes its phase. That's why we have months. That's basically the moon cycle. And there's a stock market cycle as well, which is really tied to an emotional cycle. And these feelings cloud people's judgment steers people towards financial decisions that 
aren't really in their long-term interest. So having that perspective and knowing what part of the market cycle we're in can help you weed out those emotions and not get caught up with the cause of those cycles, which are those emotions, right? Getting caught up in the crowd. And you've seen that. As you, if you do what the crowd, everyone in the crowd is doing, you're probably going to get burned. Now, stock market cycles typically anticipate economic cycles by about 6 to 12 months. Economy expands and contracts and the markets rise and they fall. So emotions go along with this ebb and flow. Ebb and flow. And whether you're a long-time investor or you're new to the process, it's important to remember that when markets shift, it's wise to have a long-term viewpoint and a long-term strategy that makes sense for your goals, your risk tolerance levels, et cetera. Now, we recently saw a market top. This is where everyone's exhilarated, where there's a lot of speculation chasing of returns. Does that sound familiar? Remember the, all the meme stocks and crypto? And this is typically when unemployment is low. People have no worries. They can go focus on the investment side, not putting food on the table. Interest rates are often low. Remember, interest rates were down. And this is when people feel invincible. They're on a high. I would say this, when you feel as, you know, just great about how everything's going, that's probably when you should be taking a bit off the table. And then the market turns down a bit. And people are get a bit worried, but you know, they still have confidence. Their their memory of the market is still comfortable. And then the economy, you know, goes into recession. Profits start to slide. But investors typically have hope for the bull market to continue. But then eventually, you get to a level of capitulation. Despondency. Where people stop holding out hope. That hope eventually diminishes as losses mount. And they don't see the light at the end of the tunnel anymore. They feel defeated. This is where fear creeps in. And there's a point of maximum pain for everybody. And that's what happens. That's how markets hit bottom. Is you have that final capitulation sell-off. Where the vast majority of investors have just reached that pain threshold. And they sell. Then the market bottoms. Optimism starts to emerge. Companies show signs of rebounding. Maybe because there were economic uh, measures taken by Congress or the Fed. But a lot of investors have been checked out. So they, they miss out on the early rise. 
and they still feel burned by that recent past when things were not so great. And eventually, the climbs that wall of worry, you get enough people on board, and then the cycle repeats itself. So that's how the cycle works. And the more you can be in tune with that cycle, the more you can buck the herd. And frankly, that's a lot of what you know. Warren Buffett, everyone loves Warren Buffett. You know, he doesn't do a whole lot in the middle, right? He'll sell when things are frothy and, you know, in the middle, he kind of stays put. And then eventually that despondency period comes and everyone's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And a lot of those companies are still very good, have good long-term earnings potential trading at very cheap prices. And having that discipline is vital. And so I know there's a lot more to the subject and your questions are always welcome if you want to dig into that a little bit more. Our best talk anytime listener line is open for your calls at 888 chart That's my perspective on market cycles. And next up, we'll go back to the best talk voice bank at 888 chart Thank you and I hope to be the 50 millionth download of your incredible show. It is official. As of February 21st, an exciting new InvestTalk milestone was achieved. The InvestTalk podcast exceeded 50 million downloads. How do you guys determine a value stock? 50 million. Just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan and BAC. Hey guys, this is Josh from South Carolina. I'm a longtime listener. 24 7, rain or shine, on tough market days or during brighter moments. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are ready to answer your questions. Our now preferred share is kind of a hybrid asset. It's part of the capital structure. You want to buy this what's on sale, and when it gets on sale, it's about $16 a share. $50 million. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Hey, Steve and Justin. This is Matt from Baltimore. I was calling about your opinions on... Chenier Energy, ticker LNG. A lot of analysts are saying that the commodities bottoming here around $2. I was thinking about starting a position. I created a basket of natural gas stocks. I also own Katera, CTRA, which is 50% natural gas. And then um, EQT, I've owned that for a while. And Tellurian, T-E-L-L, just as a more spec, smaller play. I was wondering, are there any other big competitors out there to those companies? All the sites just group all the energy companies together. Have you guys had any opinions on Chenier or natural gas in general? Be much appreciated. I listen to the show every day. You guys are awesome. Thanks for all the hard work. All right. Now, this is where you really need to understand the companies that you're investing in. Because you're talking about natural gas companies and LNG, while they deal in the natural gas space, this is very different than an EQT, which you mentioned, which is the EMP company that mainly produces natural gas and is going to be tied to the upside of natural gas. Now, what your original question one was on, which is Chenier Energy LNG, and this is a natural gas exporter. I mean, it owns the terminals 
that are taking our natural gas and shipping it to places like Europe, which obviously because of the war and uh, the key, the, all, all the, the cutoff uh, of natural gas from Russia, they needed a lot of natural gas and they've been doing very well, really, especially since the, the, the start of the war. Now, that's very different than an EQT. That's a very different business model. In fact, higher natural gas prices would probably be somewhat detrimental, I would imagine, to their business because there's less demand overseas. If it's $10 a BTU for European gas and a quarter of the natural gas is burned off on the shipment from the U.S. to Europe, that means natural gas has to be below 750 for it to be worthwhile to ship it there. Now, currently it is, right? $2 and change uh, per BTU. But that's fluctuated. It was, I think, 9 uh, uh, as of early last year. So the very different businesses here. Very different business models, both in the natural gas space, but they make money in different ways. So I would say... Positive gives you more diversity within the space. They're making good money. They expect to continue to make good money. But long term, I don't love this type of business because really this is a way to arbitrage natural gas prices from around the world. And typically that is a a very cyclical, low margin business. Now, that's long-term. Now, near-term, that's another story, right? Because this is all going to be driven by what natural gas prices are here, what they are in Europe and elsewhere, and what's happening with the war. And the war doesn't look like it's ending anytime soon. So long as the war and Russia is being cut off from the rest of the world when it comes to natural gas supply, I think Chenier will do fairly well. Now, a lot of that's priced in. It's trading at pretty high multiple to expected earnings. So you're not getting it cheap. So that's one of my big issues, um, but it's fine. Once again, it's fine, but this is not an EMP play. This is all about the war and whether that's going to continue or not. Now, when people take the time to leave an Invest Talk podcast review on iTunes, but to thank them for the courtesy by getting to their questions quickly. Gene Coos says, with reports of a total of 60 insiders selling, investors selling their position in ticker symbol T-E-C-K, tech, is it time to take the gains I have? I'm about 25% up at 42.16. And do you believe this is stock can consistently grow their dividend? Let's take a look here. Tech Resources is a name that we've owned for some time for clients, and it is up dramatically over the past year or so. But last quarter, their earnings declined, their sales declined for the first time in a while. And yes, insiders sold, but we're looking at still about $5 in earnings this year. Trading at $40, we still think uh, the value is higher. Uh, Obviously, you don't like insiders selling, but we think longer term, having access to a very diversified miner is overall a a good thing. So um, trimming your position, not necessarily the worst idea. Uh, but our value is in the mid to high 40s. Now it's at 40, 38, or actually, I guess the close today around 40. So we still like tech resources. If it gets back into the mid 40s, that's probably where I would trim. All right. 
This is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal here is to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 888 chart Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888 chart Now, as I get ready to play one more question, let me encourage you to make plans to join us for the new KPP Financial Wealth Webinar, Value Investing, Positioning Your Portfolio for Profitability, Relative Price, and Dividend Payments. The Wealth Webinar will be a crash course on how to structure your value portfolios giving real examples with assessment tools that KPP Financial uses every day to grow our clients' wealth. It's going to be March 22nd, now less than a month away, 2 p.m. Pacific time. It'll be free, but you need to register at investtalk.com. Now, let's play another caller question. Hi, this is Randy from snowy Minnesota. Wondering with like a, a brokerage firm of TD Ameritrade or Schwab or any of those, and they say there's no fees to buy and sell stocks, how do they make their money? I'll hang up and listen. Thank you. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, first off, cash. They do make a lot of money on the cash that you're holding. Uh, there are fees to wire funds and things like that that they'll, they'll charge. Uh, but a lot of it is, there, there is a good amount that has to do with uh, the Trading, uh, that's why you probably don't want to use market orders. You probably want to use limit orders. That is going to help uh, limit your, your costs uh, there that are kind of unseen. Another SEC is trying to instill a little bit more transparency in how these companies make money. And uh, for small traders, you know, it's kind of worth it, better than paying five, seven, ten dollars in commissions. Um, but understand that they are making or selling their order flow uh, to companies like Citadel. And there's there's some issues with that that I, I think the, the SEC is going to clear up over time. Um, it'll, it'll impact probably their business. Um, so, But they do make money in other ways. Like I said, uh, they take their cash, they invest it, they may pay you uh, a lower rate than what they're, they're getting uh, on that cash, et cetera. So uh, that's a big reason why, uh, that's a big way that they make money. Right. Thanks for the call. Now let's touch lastly on apartment rents and rents fell in every major metropolitan area in the U S over the past six months. That's through the month of January. And this is coming on the, in the face of a ton of new supply, actually the most supply since 1986 of new apartments coming on market. Now renters with new leases in January paid a median rent that was 3.5% lower than what they paid in August. Okay. And now still year over year, a lot of rents are, are up, but this is the start of a, I think a, a pretty consistent decline in rents that you're going to see over the next year or two. Partly prices were just too high. And then you have, nearly half a million new apartments coming online just this year because developers were trying to cash in on those high rent payments. They were doing the math and they were pricing in these high rents and there's now going to be an oversupply of apartments. 
And the share of apartment tenants who renewed leases declined in January to 52%, the lowest since 2018. Because data shows that tenants are finding better deals. And landlords are likely to stop or start dropping their renewal rent requests. And the impact on the CPI number is going to be lagged. It always is lagged because it looks at what renters are paying right now. And half of those are paying, you know, rates that are higher than what you saw in, in, in August. So over the next year, that's actually going to have a drag on CPI. And new lease rent growth ranged from 2 to 6% in January compared to one year ago. And that's, uh, once again, going to be a drag. Now, what areas saw the biggest drop? Seattle, down 8% over the last six months. Boston and Las Vegas, down 6%. And none of the 52 largest metro areas tracked saw positive, net, positive rent growth over the last six months. And single-family homes are not an exception. That's going to uh, decline as well. And so be ready for this. If you're a landlord, don't think that this recent trend is going to continue. Rental rates are going to continue to fall. So if you have a renter that's playing a high rate, don't, get, don't try to keep jacking that up very unlikely and those that those companies that have benefited from high rental rates that's reversing as well so if you're in apartment REITs for example understand that dynamic I'm Justin Klein this completes another Invest Talk program Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads which as always you can find anytime for free at iTunes Spotify or Google Play and be sure to rate and review And thanks to you. Once again, we just surpassed the 50 million download podcast. And we do have a giveaway. So if you want to head over to our Instagram page, you'll see that there. And we're going to give away a bunch of free newsletters for a year. And we're going to give out 10 today or 10 this week. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. Invest Talk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.